0: It was interesting Tom. It was an opportunity to like experiment with some of these techniques that we learned about, that we read about. Everyone has a dream. And some people's dreams take them to extraordinary places. David Simon is one of those people. Tune in every quarter to learn how a 50-something lawyer from the US navigates the ancient world of Oxford College in pursuit of an MBA.
1: Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back with David Simon for another episode of A Yank in Oxford. David, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be back. Let me ask you, David, what has happened since our last podcast?
0: Yeah, I was just going over the last couple of modules. We actually had, since the last one we recorded, we had two our last two modules and our end of course ceremony, which is because it's Oxford, we don't We graduate from our college not from the business school so we didn't have an actual graduation although we did get to walk up and shake the dean's hand there was no i I showed people the video of that and i say you notice there was no piece of paper handed over it was just a, a handshake and of course ceremony but the two modules we did were negotiations it was a whole week of negotiations and then we did a module that was a combination of they called it the strategic leader which was a wrap up course on some of the leadership concepts we'd been studying throughout the program. And we did a little module, a little return to governance and ethics for a day as well. So those are the, that that was the substance we had since we last talked.
1: So given all of your prior experience as a lawyer and negotiating, what did the practice component bring to you, David?
0: It was interesting, Tom. It was an opportunity to like experiment with some of these techniques that we learned about, that we read about, some of the research in a really, in a more sort of structured, almost like scientific way, that was really valuable. I, I learned some things and like some concepts, like you probably are familiar with anchoring, that the concept of anchoring, and that's just, I'll just use that as one example. There's a lot of research that shows just in terms of how the mind works in a negotiation, if you can anchor the range closer to where where your position is than your opponent's position you're more likely to get a favorable result and there's all kinds of research on it that shows different experiments that show that if you start at a if you're the buyer and you start low very low you're more likely if you get a deal you're more likely to get a deal that's closer to the low end than the high end And so I hadn't really used that consciously anyway in my practice. And so I was able to try that out in these simulations and it was, it worked actually. I was surprised. surprised, uh, There's a lot of caveats to that, of course, but I was surprised at the impact. And it was interesting too, because then you could compare, we'd split up as a class and everybody would do these negotiation exercises. And then we'd come back and share our results and share our experiences. And you could see like the, mock negotiation that I where I tried this anchoring technique I ended up at a level that was quite quite a bit better than a lot of my colleagues it was a really good exercise it was really fun to be able to combine that theory with the practice I I, I really think this is actually an area where we don't do a very good job as law firms um, training our associates I think it's one of these things that we take for granted we spend a lot of time on advocacy and oral advocacy and writing and building arguments, I'm not sure we do quite as well with, with the negotiation piece. I'm actually going to try to take my my assessment that I did for this course and turn it into a, a lawyer an article for lawyers. And I might actually work on doing some training for our firm on this too. I think there's a lot we can do better than we currently do.
1: I might even expand that insight to law firms do very poor jobs on training anything that's not fun. But unfortunately that's about ninety percent of the practice of law now. <laughs> So what are maybe some core lessons that you might be able to put in this article, or if you wanted to take the next step and maybe even do in-house or other training for lawyers around negotiations?
0: Yeah. So a couple of the the sort of insights that I came away with. The first is to really, one of the things we learned, we did some kind of personality test assessment things, and we talked, we learned about the different styles of negotiation. And most people have different fundamental styles. There's the sort of aggressive, the traditional lawyer, aggressive, confrontational, there's the avoiding conflict style, there's the compromise style, and then there's a value creation style. And it's interesting. I mean, people tend to cluster, have strengths in certain, certain styles, and that affects how you approach this. But one of the things that I took away from that part of the course was I think negotiations really ought to be uh, usually are and certainly ought to be more of a team sport where you work together with a group. And I think it's really important negotiating high stakes disputes and issues to make sure you have the right complement of styles. Like it's a a much more nuanced version of good cop, bad cop, but it's you want to put together a team of people with different approaches to negotiations, different strengths in, in negotiations, to try to accomplish your overall goal. That was one thing that I thought was um, pretty important. Um, The other is just the importance of preparation. I think for lawyers, we have a tendency, we're really well prepared on the facts and the law, and in terms of our ability to really know what the dispute is, know what the litigation context, let's say, we're really, we're deep into that. We tend to be less deep into what are our clients' interests here? What are their real, not just the position in the negotiation, but what are their interests? What are they trying to accomplish through this? What are their broader business goals and objectives? How does that all fit together? Who are the different constituencies within, say, a corporate client that might have slightly different interests in the issue that's being negotiated? Really understanding that, preparing it. And then I talked about the BATNA before, part of the- can I yeah, interrupt yeah. you before you get sure. to batting
1: Because it really struck me in your last remarks about the client's objectives, maybe even multiple objectives from subgroups within clients. And it seemed to me that really lends itself to some of the discussions we've previously had into taking a much more holistic approach to the delivery of legal services, where you're really moving to a counselor even position, as opposed to perhaps an advocate. Do you see that sort of insight as something that we might be able to think about it as lawyers as we enter whatever the project or assignment is?
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that you put your finger on what I think is a theme for me of this whole program and the analysis. I think that's right. I think, we, I think one of the big problems that we need to overcome as lawyers is to broaden the way we think about our clients' problems and not get myopically focused in on the particular dispute, the particular lawsuit. It, it's always bigger than that. It always reflects a bigger business problem. So I think this is a great an, another great example of that theme.
1: So I interrupted you. You were about no, no, to no. talk to us about uh, badness and objectives.
0: Yeah. So is best alternative to a negotiated uh, agreement. I think whatever. That's the idea. Okay. So when you're preparing, you really need to work with your client to understand okay, what is plan B? If we don't get a deal here, what's our best alternative? Is it go to trial in a dispute? Is it kill the deal in a transaction and understand the benefits and the costs of that alternative that helps you set your position, your sort of drop dead walk away position. It helps you strategize as you prepare um, for how to get there. I think that's really an important insight. I talked about anchoring. I thought that was a really interesting dynamic and something, um, an important takeaway. One of the things about anchoring, though, I think it's, I think it's important the way our professor described it, which I really liked was your opening offer, which anchors the thinking about the negotiation. It should be low enough or high enough, depending on which side you are, that you feel a little bit uncomfortable even saying it, right? Like it take what you think the low end is and maybe go push it a little bit farther than that. It obviously has to be defensible and you have to understand where the other side's position is, where what their interests are. Obviously the risk of anchoring too low or too high is that the other side just walks away and they just don't take you seriously. And it's, it it just, it kills the process. So you got to figure out that balance, but I think it's interesting. And there's an important insight there for us as lawyers, as we negotiate. Um, we spent a lot of our time getting past the sort of the binary fixed pie, negotiation and working on the skills to create value, new value through the negotiation. Right. So it's not just it's not just fighting over a fixed a fixed set. It's can we use the negotiation to create a relationship that that creates value for both sides that wasn't there before? Um, And that goes back to your holistic thinking for lawyers point, right? To be thinking beyond just you've sued me and I think you owe me X dollars. And you don't think you owe me X dollars, how do we fight about that? To we're a supplier, you're a supplier of ours. We have a long-term relationship. How can we use this negotiation to to maybe restructure the relationship, to change the terms of how we're dealing with each other? Maybe if we buy more from you, you can invest more and deal with whatever the issues are that creating the dispute or well, you know, whatever, something like that. I think that's a really that's a really important part of this. And then the last Sort of big observation i would note is just the importance of thinking past the resolution of the negotiation right think like a lawyer think like a litigator about what could go wrong and keep in mind that you can win the negotiation you can get the deal of a lifetime out of a negotiation but is it sustainable is the other side going to be around to pay you are you pushing are you pushing the the result to a point where you're you're it's not ultimately in your clients long-term interest because the other side declares bankruptcy and you've lost your supplier and they don't pay the judgment. Thinking that way, thinking beyond the actual immediacy of the deal to how does this affect the relationship longer term and the business objective longer term, I think is important. So those are the big ones that come to mind. But yeah, really an interesting course. I I liked it a lot more than I expected to.
1: Let's turn to the strategic leadership. Uh, And I have to say, this is one of my favorite topics. To talk to you and listen to you, talk to you about and listen to you on. But what about this module really uh, resonated with you at this point in your Oxford career?
0: Yeah, so there were, it was a little bit of a potpourri. So we had a bunch of different subjects that were run by different faculty as part of this strategic leader. A couple of them really struck me. One was around the concept of the power of doubt for leaders, which was led by uh, Professor Michael Smet's, who's taught us a a number of things throughout the course. And his premise is for leaders, especially senior leaders, some level of professional doubt is important. It's beneficial. It's critical to being good at leading an organization. And so he he has created, it's business school, so we have a four-by-four matrix. Everything in business school reduces down to a four-by-four matrix in some way or another. He is this matrix that sort of breaks down on one axis is um, how much anxiety or confidence you have in a decision, right? And then the, that may be the Y axis. And then the X axis is how much knowledge you have. How much do you know? How much do you not know about the issue that you're making the decision on? And so he talks a little bit about each quadrant. If you've got low knowledge, there's just a lot of unknowns, a lot of unknown facts on the subject you're deciding on high anxiety, you're also really worried about the consequences of this decision. The most important thing for a leader is to be to have honest humility and a lot of curiosity. And so the key, if you're in that section, is continuous learning to collect more information, to maybe be cautious about your decision-making, maybe incremental in your decision-making to avoid making a big mistake. If you move over, I was in the bottom half of our four quadrant. We should have a PowerPoint because it's business school. We don't. I feel like I'm at a disadvantage here. But if you move over (laughs) to a quadrant where the knowledge is higher but the anxiety is still high, so you think you know what you're, you think the answer, but you're still like, this is I'm not really not sure. That's when like peer mentoring and benchmarking is important. So as a leader, you can validate through a fellow CEO or a fellow managing partner. Hey, here's what I'm seeing. Am I missing anything here? Is this feels, feel like this is the right decision, but I have this anxiety anyway. Then if you move up to the top, the top half of the quadrant, if you have low knowledge and low anxiety, so you're, you don't know, you this is like the worst case scenario, right? For a, a, a leader. This is like somebody who, is confident that they know what the right answer is and that they don't know anything actually about the facts underlying their decision. That quadrant is a risk management quadrant. So that's where as like a leader to protect against really bad decisions coming out of that quadrant, you build controls and procedures in place to make sure someone else is checking because you as a leader are pretty vulnerable to making making a bad decision. And then the last piece is just that like high knowledge and low and low anxiety, fearlessness, right? So you're this topic, the subject, you're confident in your decision. That's where I think that the, the theory is the most important piece is to have a devil's advocate, someone who can challenge your assumptions and make sure you you are making a good decision. So I thought it was all really interesting. I think the, the biggest insight to me is just, I tend to think we probably all tend to think of leaders as hyper-confident, and that doubt doesn't tend to go alongside effective leadership. And Professor Smets' view is that it's not only necessary, it's good, and you, th- you need to think about it in different ways, how doubt comes into your decision-making, and correct for the risk, and correct for the potential errors, and build in protections to make sure you're not falling into traps that will lead to bad decision-making. I thought it was fascinating. It was a really interesting, interesting way to think about leadership.
1: If you had a really interesting note, I thought that I 100% agree with, which is the role of listening in Speak Up.
0: Yeah, I thought this was, so this is the other piece that I really like. So this was a professor, Megan Reitz, has done a bunch of research on this. And I thought it was really interesting from, as like a compliance lawyers that you and I are, right, that we all have, we all talk about Speak Up culture, and we all talk about All our clients are very our compliance teams and our clients are very interested and invest a lot of energy in promoting a speak up culture right they want employees to raise their hands and call the hotline and that's critical i think everybody agrees i think correctly agrees that that's really important the thing that's missing i think from a lot of those programs is focusing on the listening side right i think there's there's a an expectation that if you create these structures and you tell employees, we really want you to speak up, that they're going to speak up. And, and the facts are they won't, they don't. There are dynamics in organizations that really make that difficult. A lot has to do with power, right, that the Professor Reitz's research shows that all the senior executives and companies think that they're in a speak up culture and they feel very comfortable speaking up and they assume that all their employees feel comfortable speaking up. But when you talk to the junior people, they're like, I wouldn't, I'm not speaking up. There's no way I would do that. I don't want to, I don't want to disrupt the organization. I don't want to, you know, disrupt my team. Being aware, being aware of that dynamic, I think is really important. And I think our clients need to focus more attention on the leadership and training them on how to listen better, how to, how to convey intangible ways to the organization that they're serious and that if people do speak up, that they're going to be listening up. I think I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to, I took a note on the, on the concept. It's called advantage blindness is what um, Megan refers to it is, which is leaders because of their position and the fact that people listen to them when they speak up, they just assume that permeates through the organization. And the research suggests it does not. I thought that was p- particularly interesting and something to focus on, particularly for cl- compliance people is on how do you create that, how do you create that environment how do you make sure people really are listening, conveying to the the constituencies in the organization that they really are listening, that they're heard, that there's a point to speaking up? Right. The other thing beyond the power dynamic is just the idea that nobody's gonna do anything about what I say anyway. So why bother? Right. Even if I am in a position of power, if I feel like it's futile, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother creating an issue by speaking up. I thought there's some really interesting research. There are some lessons there for law firms, but also for our clients about how can you do this better and create, I think, what is an undeniably positive thing where everybody in the organization is taking some ownership, feeling responsibility and asking questions, raising issues, raising concerns.
1: David, it strikes me that insight really is incredibly valuable for the compliance professional to train middle managers. Who are off the front line of a speak up culture in terms of employees walking in the in an office and saying, "Hey, I need to talk to you about something," and that with that, really that insight, maybe we could move listening up to at least as high as the technical skills you have to have to be a middle manager as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I would recommend um, Megan's book is called, it's Me- Megan Reitz and I I think that her co-author is John Higgins, um, and it's called. Speak Up. And it's a pretty short book, easy read, that has some really good insights into the research on this and also some tips for how to do this stuff better.
1: David, one of the things I'm not sure we specifically touched on, but my sense is that the Oxford experience is looking at things either in a very different way or very different things than we typically look at as lawyers. I was wondering if I could use that as a long-winded way to it leading into what about some government and ethics topics insights or other
0: yeah so th- so this was i talked we, i think we did a whole episode on the first governance and ethics module with professor alan morrison um which was really great i loved it is it right in my wheelhouse so so he had a reprise where he came in for a day and talked about I mean, this kind of gets to our next episode, Tom, about wrapping it up and what comes next. But he spoke to us about, okay, you've now completed this pretty substantial commitment that has taken up a huge part of your life for two years. What do the philosophers say about that? And what, how should you think about, how should you think about that hole that is going to be left by the EMBA program being complete? And it was like such a, it's a classically Oxford. I don't think you'd get this at Wharton or Sloan School, a a, a, day-long lecture about the existentialists and Sartre and Simone de Bouvier and the the philosophy of how when you leave, when you, when you stop doing something, you have these holes in your life, right? And that your whole existence is to find projects that fill these holes. And that's the meaning of life. At least that's how I understand it. I haven't done any of the source reading of Sartre. Uh, I, I, I relied on Alan for that, but it was really interesting. It was a really great, it was a really great way to start thinking about, okay, how does this, what, what am I doing with this? I've just invested two years. I now have something, something that comes out of that. What do I do with it? How do I, how does that affect my life? How do I move forward? What holes are now left to fill and how am I going to, how am I going to project myself into those holes to, to continue to find meaning? So it was, it was, a, it was sort of just a classic Oxford experience. <sighs>
1: I'd like to ha- ask you to take us a little bit deeper into the end of course ceremony. You've talked about some of the ceremonial aspects of your experience. I, I have to believe this was the ultimate, but I'll leave that to you to tell us about.
0: It. Yeah, it was really neat. So we had actually, we started the day, it was the last day. We started the day with a series of Oxford Union style debates where our class divided up into groups and we had, I don't know, four or five topics and assigned a topic, assigned a, a side, and we had to prepare prepare to do debate Oxford Union style. And that was really fun. It was a lot of business oriented topics, but it was neat to see my classmates in that role and making really pretty compelling arguments, which was fun. And then we had our end of course ceremony It was in the Sheldonian Theater in Oxford, which is the, it's like the centerpiece for ceremony, I, I would say at Oxford all the graduations are there all the big the big events are there and it was actually cool so the dean gave up some remarks and he talked about how that sort of resonated with me he talked about how this was i think christopher wren's first that he designed and he talked about and it's gorgeous it's a beautiful setting but he talked about how architecture was a second career for christopher wren i think he was a professor at oxford I can't remember what, I think history or something totally unrelated um, to architecture. And um, later pursued this different project of architecture and ultimately obviously became one of the, maybe the greatest English architect in history. And it just, that sort of landed with me as a sort of a later in life going to business school guy as an inspiration to see someone like that make a pivot and make tremendous contributions to the world in something maybe slightly different than, than where he started. So it was really great. We had a reception then at the Divinity School, which is stunning and spectacular. Uh, a good chunk of my family w- was there, all but my youngest daughter, who had just started college, but everybody else was there, and a lot of my classmates had their families. So it was a great opportunity to see people together with their families, meet their parents, meet their spouses and their kids, and it was great. It was great.
1: David, we're near the end of this episode, but I would be completely remiss if I didn't ask about the single unique experience every Oxford student has, which is rowing. Yeah. Tell us about your final row.
0: It was a good one. It was weird to be the last one because it's now become a regular cadence for me. It was really nice and I really appreciated it. I don't know how much, I think we got better over the two years, maybe not that much better we we had a we had an incident in year 1 where we where we got the boat stuck in a tree that was overhanging part of the <laughs> river that didn't happen and we managed we managed to get the boat up and down the river fairly well but yeah I've talked about this before Tom it's one of my it's one of my very favorite things about the experience it's beautiful it's classic oxford it's a great way to to Connect with your classmates in a little bit different way outside the classroom, out in the fresh air, working together on something that isn't that easy. And it's, it's it was great. I'm going to miss it. I, I don't. I feel like I don't know. I'm not good enough at this to actually take it up as a hobby, but I'm definitely going to miss the opportunity to row every six weeks. Now that I don't have now that I don't have class in Oxford anymore.
1: David, we are at the end of our time, so I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom.
0: Good to be with you.
1: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Yank in Oxford. I hope you will join us for another episode as we continue David's journey to getting a MBA from the Oxford Executive Education Program. A Yank in Oxford is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.